I hope you'll turn with me in a Bible to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be looking together at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. As we enter into a new year, I believe this is a good word to set before us, a fitting word for the times in which we live. As we read together. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. The writer has been trying to encourage troubled Christians, Christians who are in distress, Christians who are persecuted, Christians who are tempted to give up. And the way that he encourages them is to remind them of how great Jesus is. And he spent chapter 2 showing how superior Jesus is to the angels. As great as angels are, and they are magnificent, majestic beings, Jesus is greater. And chapter 3, verse 1, is a bridge to show how great Jesus is in comparison with Moses. Moses. But before we get there, let's focus on this bridge where he reminds them of what their posture toward Jesus should be. And through the Holy Spirit speaking to us now, this should be our posture toward Jesus at all times, but especially as we enter this year of our Lord, 2023. We are to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Fix our thoughts on Jesus, to consider Jesus deeply. And the reality is, your thoughts and my thoughts will be fixed on something in this new year. Something or someone will loom large in our minds. We will be preoccupied with something. The question is, what? Not if. Who or what will loom large in your mind in this coming year? Will it be Jesus? And what I hope to do is walk through this verse, line by line, word by word, to explain this exhortation. What does it mean to consider Jesus, to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And then we want to see that exhortation illustrated by the account of the Magi in Matthew 2. What does it look like 
for us to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And all of this, the goal of all of this, my goal this morning, with the Holy Spirit's help, is for all of us to be more prepared to approach this table and to rightly partake of this meal. This is not a fast food meal. This is a meal that is to be savored, and it is to be remembered long after we leave this place. Long after the taste is gone, we are to remember why this table has been set by the Lord Jesus for his people to share in. And here's why this is so important. If we don't fix our thoughts on Jesus, then we won't love Jesus as we should. We won't know him as we should. And if we don't love him as we should, then we won't trust him as we should. And if we don't trust him, then we will certainly not obey him as we should. And the present weakness of so many churches and so many Christians is attributable to this failure. A failure to know Jesus because of a failure to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Oh, we talk about Jesus. We're surrounded by images of Jesus. We watch movies about Jesus. We read about Jesus. But we don't fix our thoughts on him. We don't meditate and reflect deeply on who he is and why he came. And again, because we don't do that, we don't love him. How can we love someone we don't know? And if we don't love him, then we're certainly not going to trust him when he tells us to go. And he doesn't give us all the reasons. Why would we trust someone we don't love? And if we don't trust him, we're not going to obey him. So let's look at what it means to fix our thoughts on Jesus today and in this new year. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, we need to ask, what is it there for? Something has gone before this that we need to pay attention to. What has he said just before this? In Hebrews 2, verse 18, we read, Because he himself, that is Christ, suffered when he was, he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, writing to these persecuted Christians, these distressed Christians, these people who are thinking, is it worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth dying for? Is Jesus worth being thrown in prison for? Or not? And the writer here is saying, Jesus suffered too. He knew trouble. He knew distress. He knew gloom. His fears were real, just as his, his tears were real. And because of that, because he suffered, and because he remained faithful in the midst of that suffering, he's able to help you. He can help you. He can sympathize. He knows. He's been there. He's done that. Don't, don't look to anyone else to help you like he can. Others can sympathize, yes, but can they really help you? They can identify with you. Maybe they can speak some words of 
encouragement to you, but they can't help you like Jesus can because Jesus can deliver you through that suffering, through that temptation. So turn to Jesus in your distress. Don't try to interpret your life based on your circumstances, what's going on around you. Don't look inwardly to try to look on the brighter side or try to find the silver lining. Look to Jesus. So therefore, because he's able to help you, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, holy brethren who share in the heavenly calling, by calling them holy, he's saying you have been set apart. God has designs on your life. Just as God is holy, so also he makes his people holy. As we read in Hebrews 2, verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. They're of one. And the assumption beneath this attribute is that we must be made holy. We are not naturally holy. And holiness isn't something that we should just go pursue. Just be holy. Be more pure. Be more righteous. Good luck with that. We can't. We must be made holy. God must intervene to set us apart. And he has done so by the work of his Holy Spirit. And all those who trust in Christ as Lord and confess him as Lord and who believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. He's reminding them of who they are because of what God has done. Brothers and sisters, family, remember what God's done for you. He's made you holy. You're not holy. You have no right to that attribute. I know you people. You're not naturally holy. But God, who is holy, has set you apart to be different, to reflect his holiness. And he says that they share in a heavenly calling. Which means that you didn't come to Christianity because you evaluated the options around you and you chose this philosophy or this religion over all these other philosophies or religions. No, from heaven God called you. From heaven God intervened. And you can't take any credit for it. You know that on your own, you are earth-bound in bondage to sin. And that unless heaven breaks into your life, you're doomed. You have no access to God. You only know His judgment on your life because of your sinfulness. That's who you were. But now you're holy. Now you share in a heavenly calling. Now you're part of God's redeemed family. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. You've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is who you are. Remember that. And then fix your thoughts on Jesus. In light of who you are, consider Jesus. And, and, and don't just think about who he is intellectually, dwell on who he is with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything you have. Think of Christ. Fix your thoughts, your thoughts 
on Christ and who He is. Your mind should be set on Him. Why? Because we confess Him, we acknowledge Him as our apostle and our high priest. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is described as an apostle. What does that mean? An apostle is someone who is sent, usually sent on an official mission. And Jesus came from heaven to earth. And in that sense, he has been sent. He is our apostle. He came to us. We didn't go to him. And he, he was sent on a sacred mission to save sinners. To redeem all of those who look to him for salvation. Who realize that apart from him, they are lost and without hope. And deserve to be eternally separated from God. No, he is our apostle. He's been sent to save us. And not only that, he is our high priest. He is the one ordained by God the Father to share in our humanity, to have flesh and blood, and to live the life that you haven't lived, that I haven't lived, and that we will never live. To live a righteous life in our place as our substitute before God, our priest. And not only that, to offer his blood, not the blood of an animal, not the blood of another person, his own righteous, pure blood flowing from a pure life. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. He is our high priest. He can offer his life in our place. What can I offer? What can you offer? Nothing. Nothing but filthy rags. We have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. So we need him. We need an apostle. We need a high priest. And he's all of those things and more. For us, think about him. Dwell on who he is. When you wake up in the morning, think of who Christ is. Fix your thoughts on him. Don't worry about what the headlines are. Don't check your email first. Don't worry about whatever drama is in your life. Don't try to look around the world and wring your hands. What's to be done? Think about Jesus. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. And nothing that happens out there can change who he is. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's what we need to do, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. So the question on the other side of that explanation is, is this true of you? Have you been made holy? Not because of anything you've done or said, but because of the Holy Spirit within you, giving you a new nature, God's very nature, changing you from the inside out? Do you partake of a heavenly calling? Do you know the goodness of the Lord? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And do you confess Christ as your apostle and your high priest? 
We need to heed the exhortation here. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. If you never have before, may this be the day. May this be the year. Both for you as an individual, for Tabernacle, as a church family. Let's fix our thoughts on Jesus. Amen? Let's fix our thoughts on Jesus. And everything else will fall into place when that priority is put first. So that is the exhortation explained. Now, let's keep this verse in mind as we think back on Matthew 2 and the Magi. What does it look like? What does it look like to consider Jesus in this way, to fix your mind and your thoughts on Jesus in this way? Well, there are three dangers here, three ways to fail to fix your thoughts on Jesus. And we see them illustrated fully in the characters here. And if you don't see yourself in this, then you're spiritually blind. We have all done this at one time or another. And we are still tempted to do this at one time or another. What happens? Magi from the east. We don't know exactly where that is, but possibly it's as far away as Babylon they come to Jerusalem, and as magi, they're looking to the stars. They're looking to natural phenomena to interpret what's going on. They're pagans. They're pagans. And despite what the song says, they're not kings. They're the people who advise kings. They're the people the kings turn to, to know, what do I do next? Can you interpret this dream for me? What do those stars mean? Help me know what to do next. That's who they are. And they've seen a star, and something about that star leads them to believe that there's a new king of the Jews. Various nations and people groups had their own constellations and phenomena in the, in the starry skies. And they see something that leads them to believe there's a new king of the Jews. And so they follow the star, and where would you go if you wanted to find the king of the Jews? Well, naturally, you go to Jerusalem. And when they go to Jerusalem, they find that there's already a king on the throne. And this king who's on the throne is not at all looking for a new king. This is Herod the Great, after all. This is a man who was ruthless to maintain his grip on power. And he would eliminate anyone or anything that stood in his way. He would scheme. He would plot. He would pay homage to the Romans if that's what it took. He'd pay homage to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Whatever he needed to do. He was conniving. He was manipulative. But he knew how to hold on to power. He was a man of this world. And he's stunned to hear this news that there's a new king. What? Why am I the last to hear of this? So what does he do? He calls in the equivalent of his magi. He calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he says, uh, I, I haven't read the scriptures in a while, but can you remind me, where is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is to sit on David's throne? Where is he to be born again? 
And without hesitation, they can cite Micah 5 too. Well, of course, in Bethlehem, that's the city of David after all. Let's take a moment to think about these scribes, these teachers of the law. You see how familiar they are with the scriptures. They know exactly where the Messiah is to be born. They know who Jesus is, the King of the Jews, but they fail to know him. They fail to go and seek him out. They fail to go and worship him. And because they don't fix their thoughts on him, they give him a glance, brief thought, of, of course. Well, that's great. We know where the Messiah is to be born. If he's born, that's wonderful. We've got more important matters to attend to. And because they don't know him, they don't love him. And because they don't love him, they don't trust him. And because they don't trust him, they don't obey him. And they remain just as lost as they were before. All the while having the scriptures. They have the scriptures. Do you have the scriptures? If you don't have a copy, there's one in the pews. Take one. We need the scriptures. The scriptures point us exactly to Christ. We cannot know him as we should without the scriptures. But we also need the power of God. And Jesus, when he is speaking to his opponents in the Gospel of John, says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But for these scribes, they know the scriptures, but they don't know the power of God. Now, what would lead them to not want to check this out? Just take a look. Well, think about where they are. They're in Jerusalem. Where do things happen in this time and place? Jerusalem. This is where the power brokers gather. This is where matters are decided. Why would you leave that to go to Bethlehem? And so also for you and for me, we think that what really matters in the world is what you can see on the nightly news or what you can read about in the headlines. That's, that's where it's at. That's where it really matters. And, you know, we can get a little boost from church and some, you know, some feel-good emotions, but really, the movers and the shakers, oh, that's Washington, D.C. That's where the power is. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's not how God chooses to show up. This is a God who humbles the proud, humbles the proud, and who exalts the humble. Those who say, I'll go to Bethlehem if that's what it takes. Never mind Jerusalem. I'm not too proud to go to Bethlehem to worship this newborn king whom nobody else has heard of. So watch out for the danger. This is, this is what we are especially prone to do. Those of us who come to church on the Lord's Day, who open our Bibles, who attend Bible studies, our temptation is to know about Jesus without knowing Jesus. And this is a recipe for a weak and sickly Christian who will inevitably be a part of a weak and sickly church who 
doesn't know about the power of God, oh, they have the Scriptures. They memorize the Scriptures. They open the Scriptures. Just ask them where the Messiah is to be born. They know, but they haven't fixed their thoughts on Him. They don't dwell on who He is. They haven't been gripped by who He is and what He's done for them. What a shame. What a shame. But then there's Herod. What can we say about Herod? Herod, hearing the news that this baby has been born and hearing from the Scriptures that he is to be born in Bethlehem, what is his response? Well, he knows who Jesus is. He has just as much information, if not more, than the Magi. And yet he fails to surrender to him. Why? He's king. He has power. He has authority. He lives in comfort. Why would he give that up? Why would he yield that to anyone else? But would Herod be a lesser king or a weaker king by worshiping Jesus? No. No. That would make him a king of character, an upstanding king who knows where authority really lies. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He's also too proud. He's too proud. But not only that, not only does he ignore this, not only does he fail to surrender, what does he say to the Magi? Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Just stop by here on your way back. I want to worship him too. What is he doing? He's showing us the character of a hypocrite. A hypocrite. And the word hypocrite has a very interesting history. It comes from Greek theater, ancient Greek theater. And it describes someone who puts on a mask to play a part. And that's exactly what Herod is doing. He puts on the mask. I want to worship him too. You ever put on a mask? I have. We all have. We've all played this role. We've given Jesus lip service. We've acted like we're worshiping and loving him, but our hearts are far from him. And we're holding on to this hidden sin that we don't, know, we don't want anybody to know about. And we think that we can hide it from God. And we're, of course, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and we do as our ancestors have always done. We try to hide from God under the cloak of a worshiper. <laughs> and it's exhausting to keep this act up. It's exhausting. And what happens is you end up suppressing the truth more and more and more until you don't know what the truth is anymore. So far, in fact, that you could justify, as Herod did, killing infants in your rage to eliminate a threat. We can shake our heads at that and say that that's despicable, as indeed it is. And thank God we're not like that. We would never want to kill Jesus. Never think of doing such a thing, would we? 
Well, not explicitly, no. I, I, most of us probably wouldn't want to try to do that. But just look at what our culture has done to Christmas. Just consider your typical Christmas message from a politician, from a celebrity. What do they talk about? Do they talk about Jesus? Maybe by name. But what they're more likely to talk about is that Christmas is this wonderful season, this joyous season, for everybody to be more kind, more thankful, more joyful than on any other time of the year. It's a season to eat well, to be merry, to be with people we want to be with, our family, friends, whatever it is, and to just make merry, just be happy for one time of the year. Let's celebrate. And let's give thanks that this guy was born 2,000 years ago to somehow give us the freedom to buy gifts we otherwise would never buy and give those gifts and exchange gifts and just make merry. Just look at what we've done. We've, in effect, killed Christ. We've separated Christ from Christmas because we think it's not about him. And the sad part is how many churches think it's okay to not gather on the Lord's Day when the Lord's Day, when the Christmas falls on the Lord's Day. Well, because people probably wouldn't show up. Because most people don't know what Christmas is about. This is the problem. This is the problem. We've suppressed the truth. Without knowing it, we've killed Christ. And we don't know anything about the fact that he is our apostle, our high priest. He came to save sinners. Sinners. When was the last time you heard that message from a celebrity or a politician? I haven't. But that's what it's about. And if you don't know that that's what it's about, you'll miss the whole point. And you won't fix your thoughts on Jesus. And when you don't fix your thoughts on Jesus, you don't love him, you don't trust him, and you don't obey him. And you'll go with the stream of wherever the culture goes. It'll take you far afield. You'll just go along. Whatever the culture says Christmas is about, well, we'll just join in that. What else can we do? Oh no, but if our thoughts are fixed on Jesus, then we're going to love him more. This is the one who was sent by God the Father for me and for my salvation. This is the one who suffered and bled on the cross for me, a worm like me. This is the great high priest who can offer his blood in my place. This is the one who gave his life as my substitute. Oh, I, I love him and I want to love him more. And in loving him, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. When he tells me to enter this new year with faith, I will do so. And wherever he tells me to go, I will go. Whatever he tells me to do, I will do. When he tells me to stop, I will stop. When he tells me to close my mouth, I'll close my mouth. Is that you today? This meal prepared on this table is for those who are ready and willing to humbly fix their thoughts on Jesus. 
Never mind what Herod does. Never mind what the scribes knew. Never mind about any of that. We're going to fix our thoughts on Jesus because he is our apostle. He is our high priest. It's about him. But where is he? We're we're, going to fix our thoughts on him. Just look at the bread and the cup and picture Jesus. What are we to think? Where is Jesus? What is he doing? For most people, he's just an historical figure. He lived 2,000 years ago. We can read about him. We can honor his teaching. We try to follow his example. But it's anyone's best guess where he is now or what he's doing. Consider these words from the Scottish hymn writer, Horatius Benar. Here's what he wrote. We went to Bethlehem, but found the babe was gone. The manger empty and alone. And whither has he fled? Where's he gone? He asks. To Calvary, they said, to suffer in our stead. We went to Calvary, but found the sufferer gone, the place all dark and lone. Whither? We asked, where's he gone? Into the heavens, they said, up to the throne for us to intercede. So then, to heaven we'll go, The babe is not below. To heaven we'll go, look up! Set your hearts and your minds on Christ, where he is right now, interceding for us. Saying, Dane Hadley has no merit before God. His prayers don't deserve to be heard. But Father, because of my blood shed in his place, be pleased, be pleased to make him holy to hear his prayer. He's interceding for us right now. He's interceding for us as we share in this meal that he's prepared for us. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of where Jesus is right now? He's not in the manger. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's in heaven. He's risen, exalted, and one day he will return. And all those who have fixed their thoughts on him, who have waited patiently and faithfully, will be ready when he returns. May this meal prepare us to wait patiently and faithfully as we proclaim his death until he comes. Let us pray. Father, there are so many things for us to think about. There are so many things for me to say from this pulpit. But I pray that what is heard from this pulpit And I pray that what I continue to say from this pulpit will be fixed on Christ. That we would look to Him. That we would see Him and Him crucified and risen and interceding for us right now. Lord, may we see him as he truly is, not as we imagine him to be, not as we want him to be, but as you have sent him, as our crucified and risen Lord. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit 
on your people today in this place, that we would receive the elements on this table, not as mere symbols, not, not as just a ritual, but that they would come to us with the power of your grace, that we would receive them with thankfulness and with joy and with hope that the same Jesus who was crucified and risen will one day return. Lord, make us ready, we pray, as you work in our midst, as you transform our hearts and our minds. Lord, lead us to look up. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.